Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Secure Talk. My name is Mark Schreiner, and I'll be your host for this episode of Secure Talk. Today, we're going to be talking with Laura Bellmain, who is the founder and CEO of SafeStack Academy. SafeStack is a mission-driven and community-centric online training platform that provides software development teams with the skills they need to build high-quality, secure software. And we're going to we're going to be talking to Laura about what you know what are the skills needed to build high-quality and secure software, what her company does, but also what are some best practices um, in the market for secure DevOps and app security development, so on and so forth. Before we do that, let's say hi to Laura. Laura, how are you today? I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. It's my pleasure. And I think you're in New Zealand, right? I am. Uh, very far away. At the you know we have hobbits and a lot of cyclones at the moment. But yes, lovely part of the world. <laughs> that's funny. My myself and my three boys are all huge fans of Lord of the Rings. And one day, that's on our bucket list. Is we've got to get down there and um, find the Shire. Oh, absolutely. It's waiting for you when you're ready. That's awesome. And and just before we were um we, we hit the record button, you were teaching me how to pronounce the um the place you're from. And and I believe it's is it Fangare? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a, a, a Maori place name, so our indigenous people. So anything you see with a WH is an F sound. Okay. Um now I know. So what's it like there? I mean, t- tell me a little bit about the uh, the town or the city or the area. Awesome. I actually, I, I kind of gave up on the big city life. I'm living in a small town, about 50,000 people, but it's in the, the subtropical north. So uh, it's very humid and there's a lot of beautiful ocean and a lot of hiking and outdoor things to do. So uh, feeling very lucky. And, and how do you get any work done with being surrounded by all that <laughs> natural beauty? Uh, it, it's tricky, but um, I, I love what I do, which makes it a lot easier. Um, I think I would struggle to do a boring job. Well, it's yeah. I mean, if you love what you do, then you're truly blessed and you're living in, a, in, a, in an awesome location as well. So you're double blessed. Let me ask you, though, I mean, I, I think in the 120 plus episodes that we've recorded for Secure Talk, you're the first person that I've spoken to who's based in New Zealand. And we don't have on our radar anyway, a, a lot of cybersecurity, either startups or mature companies uh, based in New Zealand. In fact, we don't even see a lot of, I mean, because you're talking about, you know, building high quality, secure software. I, I have, I'm not really aware of, um, you know, a huge software development community in New Zealand. So t- tell me, like, you know, how did you come to found SafeStack and what's the, what's the ecosystem like there for security and also for just software development in general? Mm-hmm. It's, it's a really great question. Um, I think we're a little bit of a quiet giant in this space. So on the software side, we do have some really big companies come out of here. Uh, often they get acquired by more international brands, so they get you know swallowed up by the motherships. Um, but companies like Xero uh, come from New Zealand. So we have, it's probably our third biggest export at the moment is software. Um, we are a tiny country, so bear in mind that we're only just shy of 5 million people. Um, but we have a huge software community spread all across the North and South Islands. Um, and there's some really cool technology being built from, yeah, we've got a lot of FinTech. Um, we've got some really cool uh, stuff in changing the way that shopping happens. We've got stuff in the movie industry from Weta Digital. 
Um, so we've got a lot of things, just people don't associate it with New Zealand. Uh, they tend to forget we exist and that's okay sometimes. For security, we have a very small security population. Um, we, like everywhere else, we struggle to fill our roles. Um, we have probably two or three uh, kind of growth companies coming out in the security space, but I'd say we're more focused on consultancies more in that space because of the maturity where the country is and just because of numbers. Uh, but Australia, just over the water, has a much bigger community. So we tend to occasionally get adopted as uh, Australians and we join in with the office for their <laughs> stuff too. Well, well knowing some people from New Zealand and Australia, I, I, I'm sure you just love it when you get... Um... <laughs> Uh, mixed up with or or, or what's the word um, just assimilated into greater Australia it, it, well yeah as long as I don't have to live there I love my my Aussie friends and cousins but uh, they do have all of the bitey uh, spiky poisonous things and we have all the beautiful <laughs> things so uh, I'm not in a hurry to trade that's awesome hey um, so I mean yeah I mean that's that's amazing I, I know that um, I guess like everybody else in the world that New Zealand punches about way above its weight when it comes to rugby um, but the fact that, I mean, I'm impressed that you have so many different, um, you know, tech related companies based there and that I'm totally not aware of it. And so, I mean, I, I definitely need to do um, a little more research on that. Did you get your um, start working primarily then with local companies or were you doing, were you starting to consult immediately with uh, with companies uh, around the world who needed help in terms of, um, you know, security Actually, for their, their their development teams? My start was actually really unusual entirely. It was none of those things. Um, I started off age 17 as a COBOL developer uh, mm -hmm. for taxation systems. Um, I did some real-time radiation monitoring software for CERN in Switzerland. Um, and then I went and did government work. So for the equivalent of the NSA, but in the UK, um, doing counterterrorism. And so I actually did a lot of um, very high-end software development before I came into the security space. And then I migrated more into the offensive security side about 15 years ago now. Um, and then uh, in 2014, I just had my first little girl and I was kind of fed up that I was seeing the same things over and over again on the offensive side of security. And I knew that um, I still loved building software. So I kind of became this hybrid and started working with very high growth companies, uh, companies like PushPay, which they do church giving software, but they're, uh, they've got a lot of customers over the US, um, to see if we could reinvent how security was working so that it wasn't a blocker for them. In fact, it helped them go faster. So kind of my consulting grew out of a love of building amazing software and wanting it to do great things. Awesome. And and if um, maybe you can just tell me a little bit about uh, what SafeStack actually does to help companies, you know, secure their software development. Awesome. Yeah. So um, we started off doing consultancy many, many years ago. Um, and the idea was we gave the skills to the team. So we don't believe that consultants should, you know, build themselves a very comfy seat and stay there forever. And, uh, you have to give those skills to the teams you're supporting. Um, you don't succeed if you haven't done that. Now, when COVID hit in 2020, um, all of the organizations we were working with, these very high growth companies, a lot of them kind of, you know, they're like little turtles, went into their shells and, you know, looked after themselves, which is exactly what they should have done. And so we took the opportunity at that time to go, well, what if instead of us doing what we do for one or two companies here and there, we could do it for 
every software developer. So there's 30 million software developers in the world right now, and it grows at a rate of about 1.2 million a year. And so we wanted to see, could we change it around so that secure development wasn't something you came to late that every developer could do, and that it was part of software quality, not as a separate thing. So what we do is we have a range of courses and um, qualifications for every role in the software team. So testers, analysts, architects, UX folks, uh, every role you can think of. Um, we build up on core subjects, not just for the bit of code you write, because we actually think that's kind of late in the process, um, but for every stage, there's things to think about. And then we have hands-on experiences and labs to play into that. So not just your capture the flag style that we're used to, but how do we simulate all of these activities that we should be doing? So threat assessment and thinking about design. Um, and then we have a community and that's the bit I love the most. And that's bringing together organizations from around the world and making it safe to say, hey, I have no idea what I am doing. What have you done? Allowing them to ask anonymous questions um, and just really share their approaches because the future of secure software isn't about someone like me saying, hey, your baby is ugly, you should feel bad, uh, you should do this now. It's about saying, hey, engineering teams, you really know this space, you know the systems you're building. This is just a skill set you've never had time to develop. So we're giving the skills and the thought processes, and then hopefully one day it will belong to them and we will be able to just be the very niche specialists at the edge that support in those strange cases nobody's encountered before. Well, um, we've got eight. Oh, go sorry, ahead. carry on. No, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to give you an idea of scale. So we have 865 organizations now in 65 countries. So it's it's quite a growing movement. That's awesome. And now are most of these uh, programs kind of self-directed or they is it a hybrid approach or how does that work? So it's all um, asynchronous. So we do monthly um, seminars, which are more synchronous with a person, but they're more of a kind of a facilitated book group, if you will. Uh, so, for example, we would um, do a group threat assessment of a new architecture that we've designed. Uh, so we'll, we will provide the, you know, the stimulus, the example architecture, and then we get our learners to interact with each other to do a threat assessment and really get stuck in. But the majority of learning is online. And uh, we have a team of specialists uh, here in New Zealand and in Australia who are building content, releasing it every month. So you can learn around whatever you're doing, which helps also with time zones and things, because uh, we're, we're all over the world. So being synchronous is very, very hard. And it makes it prohibitive for a lot of organizations who couldn't afford to take two days out of their schedule to do a full two day course. Sure. Well, you know, and, and there's I may definitely value in going through some type of certification program, uh, the the kind of um, in person exercises that you that you're talking about are also really important. I also I think, you know, anybody because the threat landscape evolves constantly and you know, one day you could be working on one type of project and the next day something completely different. But having that, I guess, that community of alumni and and instructors to kind of fall back on and say, hey, this is kind of an unusual situation. What, you know, what should I be thinking about? I think that's tremendously valuable as well. Yeah, and I think the reason that we're so um, passionate about that part is, so let me give you some just kind of, there, there's some kind of misconceptions in secure software and application security in general. Um, and it's about how many people we have. So in New Zealand, for example, the average size of our security team, even for large enterprise is 1.9 people. 
So that means even in a several thousand person organization, there might be just one and a bit persons in charge of all information security. So when you get to AppSec, they haven't got a hope. They've got too many other things to do. And even in those organizations that do have a few specialists, you're still talking about, you know, one or two specialists to several hundred software development people. And so you can't scale it that way. Now, we like to think that everyone is doing DevSecOps and everyone is, you know, everyone knows all this stuff and we've all got our sneaks in and, you know, but it's really not the case. Um, the, what we've learned so far is less than 5% of the organizations we talk to are what we would call mature Dev, DevSecOps practitioners. The rest are actually much, much earlier in our journey, but we really hear more stories from that small minority. So I think this helps us, instead of trying to get specialists into every environment, um, give a broad set of foundations to a very large group of organizations who are in need of a much more structured approach than perhaps we've taken into account before. Makes a lot of sense. You know, what do you say in 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 terms of, look, security a training and awareness is important, but at the end of the day, you know, your job is a developer and we need mm-hmm. to focus on the business goals versus having you, you know, totally focused on security. Um, mm-hmm. Understanding though, that the, the threat landscape and best practices are constantly evolving. So there's a role for education and awareness and community. There's also some pretty powerful tools out there used by developers to kind of help guide them in terms of, you know, writing code that is safe or checking the code that they're um, that they're submitting, or uh, you know, in terms of controls around how they use in, in different repositories and so on. So there's some kind of there's there's an effort at least for um, for automation as part of the you know development process mm. versus and i wouldn't say it's versus education but maybe in line with education no. but what are your thoughts on that i think they're complementary so the way i describe it is i love tools um you know we use many of them ourselves internally we build software as well as building education so we kind of have to live what we're teaching um but it's much like um when you buy a gym membership i i have owned many gym memberships and i am not the healthiest fittest person on the planet I'd love to be, but I'm not. And that's because buying a gym membership, buying a treadmill doesn't make you fit. Buying a security product and putting it in your life cycle doesn't necessarily mean that your team is embracing security. Um, You need not just the technologies and the tooling and the automation, but the understanding of the role that plays and the, uh, the thought process so that you can make the analysis and make the decisions with the results these tools are going to give you. So we see ourselves as kind of half of the picture. We complement and actually cultivate people into using their tools more effectively. We would much rather people know why those tools matter and what to look for and how to really appreciate the value in their world, because that means that they will then use them more. They'll get more value out of them long term. Again, makes it makes a lot of sense. What are I mean, I'm assuming you have several different courses or programs um, maybe you can give me an idea of some of the different options that um, that companies or or developers would have in terms of where they could focus and how they could get started. Yeah, absolutely. So we have um, we have courses um, which uh, cover things like introduction to DevSecOps. We've got a threat assessment course. Uh, we've got security fundamentals courses. We've got t- courses for software testers, and we've got our finding and fixing series, which cover 
common vulnerabilities in different architecture types. So we've got one for microservice architectures, um, mobile security is coming out at the moment, standard web applications. We're pretty much, if we're seeing our customers building it, we're building education in it. We even have courses coming through in the next year in uh, securing AI and machine learning uh, environments, securing data pipelines for data science teams. We want to be where the software developers are, not necessarily where the security community is, because we're not as in touch with where technology is moving. Um, we then have the ability in the platform to set what we call learning pathways. So these are groupings or structures of courses so that if you've got a team, some teams know where they want to go and they will set their own pathway and say, hey, I want to do this one, this one, this one. But many teams don't know where to start and they want an effective pathway to their goals. So we give them the ability to then set a subset of courses as relevant to different roles in their teams. So, you know, you've, if you've got a BA, there is a pathway that we could create that's just for them. Um, that doesn't take them wandering off into areas that might not suit their skill set, but it does complement what their development team will be doing. So by doing this, by keeping our content really relevant to where software is and where it's going, um, it gives our learners not just a chance to learn once and well, but to keep that learning going at the speed that the software development world changes. I see that as kind of like almost like a must have uh, for, for any organization, whether it's uh, whether it's Safe Stack Academy or, or some other type of uh, education source. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and, you know, in fairness to all other providers, there are many wonderful providers out there. And I think when you're planning your learning, whatever tool you decide to use or whether you build it yourself, remembering there's different roles in your team and your team only functions because of that diversity of role and then factoring it into what you need and what you're teaching is really fundamental because historically we just haven't done that everything's been aimed at the senior engineer um roles like testers product owners business analysts have received very little security education historically so it's time to change that how do you uh, keep your content fresh uh, yeah how do we keep it fresh? Oh, yeah, because I mean, you know, the, you could you could publish something today and and two years from now it could be totally outdated, oh, partially outdated, absolutely. or yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's a never-ending story, right? Um, I think we we've intentionally signed on to never be done, um, and that's good. I, our team loves that. We have um, a group of really senior subject matter experts on the team who were published authors, were contributors to OWASP projects around the world. We've lived and breathed as practitioners, not just consultants. Um, and we, the reason that we release our course content monthly is because it gives us a very tight production cycle for it. So when something changes, we can go back very quickly and go, well, what just happened there? Um, the community also helps us with that because we can, you know, put amendments out the moment they happen. So, yes, we have a course on X, Y and Z. There's just been a massive breach that we all should be learning something from. What can we be learning from that situation? And then we can feed that back into our roadmap and get it into the courses um, as they hit production again. So we we try we're not trying to make, you know, the infinite book that will last forever. Uh, we're trying to make a really rapidly evolving resource that is going to be that trusted sidekick whenever you need it. What what's your perception of the the number of breaches or percentage of breaches that are caused by some type of, you know, issue with the software development versus you know, just the uh, business email compromise or some type of, you know, social engineering or malware attack. Mm. 
Well, I think there's a, a couple of factors that affect our ability to even really know um, the, the scale of what's going on here. Um, because of breach disclosures being the way they are around the world, there's very few countries in the world that mandate that if you have a breach, you have to tell anyone. Um, the only reason we tend to know that there's a breach happening is that it has been made public somehow. So there are a lot of people affected or, or it has been publicised either by the attackers or by a company's had to respond. Um, that means that we've got a very skewed picture of breaches. I think um, the, there's a bit of software security that we overlook that is probably contributing a lot more than we realise, and that's the connectivity between our systems and applications. So there are lots of flaws in our software. I've been dealing with software now for a very long time, and I have yet to see a system that doesn't have some form of flaw. And that's not a it's not an insult, it's just the reality of software. Bugs are much easier to create than we realize of any kind. Uh, but the thing that's changing the most rapidly is how quickly we're integrating software pieces together. So if we look at our stacks from 15 years ago, 20 years ago, we were building a lot of components ourselves. There were no libraries to use, there were no integrations, there was certainly no third-party SaaS solutions we could integrate with. We're now building our software in a much more connected way. So it's not just about the code we write, but it's the code we inherit from others. Now, people will call this software supply chain, but in the software development world, we don't think of it in that language. And I think it's important when we do security that we bring our language to that of development, not just in the security world. And we talk about our dependencies, our relationships, our integrations, and how those are going to affect us. And I think if we were honest, the bigger cause of breaches now is third party components and integrations with systems. And that's only going to get worse. Well, on that topic, what are some some low hanging fruit in terms of best practices you can adopt to prevent some issues. Absolutely. So um, it, it's a lot of it's going to depend on what you're building out of. So, you know, there's some big giant caveats. Please look at your own stack and your own technology suite. But let's have a look at some really simple things you could put in place aren't going to cost you anything. Sorry, security vendors out there, including myself. Um, so if you're in the GitHub space, turn on Defenderbot. Let it tell you when there are problems with your dependencies. You can buy tools for this, but there are open source tools and free tools. So Dependabot's one in GitHub. You can look at um, OWASP Dependency Checker, which does a similar job, which is free to use. Um, let's make sure all of our credentials and our secrets are gone from our code bases. It's 2023 now. We really need to be better at that. Um, and so go and have a look at something like Trufflehog. Um, there are many different free open source tools you can run in your pipeline that will just do, you know, take two to three minutes maximum to check for the potential of you having some secrets in code you shouldn't have there. And if I was going to give you a third tip, it's going to be to look at the account security on your uh, platform. So if you are using any form of cloud platform, well, that's not technically the code you write. That platform's a massive target because even if you get the security of your code amazing, you know, you've built Fort Knox, it's impenetrable. Well, it probably isn't, but let's pretend. <laughs> then attackers are quite efficient. They, they're, they're not here to go, hey, I'm going to prove that I'm greater than you. They're objective focused. They want to get to the, the treasure. So if they can't get in by your front door, they're going to go brick a window somewhere else. So go look at your cloud hosting provider. Make sure that you're using different accounts for tests and production. Make sure you've got your two-factor turned on. All of these are really unsexy things, um, but it's those unsexy problems. If, when we solve them, we have huge impact. So 
get rid of old dependencies, get rid of your secrets in your source code and have a look at the basic configuration of your cloud platform. And that's three things you could do today that would make it even better. And and I mean, all that totally makes sense and, and, and you're right. It's, it sh should be something that we all do on a regular basis. And how do you, um, in terms of time management, okay, so you're a developer, you've got, you know, everybody has pressure, uh, you've got to get the job done. How do you work this into your daily routine or regular process so it becomes almost just part of the DNA of, of your dev program? So there's two things that I like to do on this front. Firstly, it's making it a team sport that this is why we train every role. It's not about that one security minded engineer who's going to go above and beyond. It's about everybody in the same way that observability and scaling and performance and usability is a shared responsibility. So is security. So you can have a security champion on your team by all means, but it needs to be in the DNA of everybody. The other side of this is I am fundamentally a very lazy person. And I kid you not, if there is an opportunity in my world to get rid of a job, I will get rid of it. And so I use my security skills in combination with my development skills as a superpower. You know, your engineers, the thing they love most is finding an awful problem and never having to do it again. So if they understand the problems and you can give them the basic building blocks, they can turn these into automated things that can just run without anyone having to think about it. And that's where security should be. It's not about having specialists and extra effort. The best way to do it is to do it a few times, hate it with a passion, and then make it go away using the skills that you use in your professional life every single day. And if you can create a small backlog in your development teams of security automations or you know security quick wins and let people pick one every so often and measure and celebrate the velocity you have of a adding things to that list and b taking them off again that's going to create a really awesome culture that kind of promotes as part of what being a software developer is doing some security along the way but not being overwhelmed by it that's some some awesome advice when you go and, and and talk to prospective customers, and when I say you go, I'm I'm assuming you know most of your communications are online these days. Mm -hmm. But what what do they want to know? What's their biggest concern? Because I, as you mentioned earlier, there are other uh, providers out in the marketplace. But what are the what are the key things that they're looking for? Well, there's a range, and it depends on the the age and stage of the company. But some common themes: there are a lot of organizations there that are overwhelmed. There is too much to do and not enough time. And they want to know that there are pathways that have worked for other people that they can see and they can put in place. Now, we don't believe in vanity metrics that say this training stops 93 percent of vulnerabilities. That's, that's that's fairy tales. And we all know it. But what we can say is, hey, we work with several organizations that look like you. And here's what we mean by look like you. Here's a profile. And here's the core structure that they really liked and here's where they put it in and here's some tips for along the way. And we can also sit and listen. We do a lot more listening than talking about what's hurting right now. Uh, a lot face what we call the pit of despair, which is they know they've got security issues. They know they need something to do, but they found so many bugs or so many things that need to change. that They feel like they're on this precipice that they can't get across. They can't there's just too much to do and they can't feel any way forward. And so helping them understand that you can just do this in tiny modules. Our courses, while they might add up to you know a few hours per course, they break down to two to four minute chunks. And mm -hmm. two minutes a day isn't very much. 
So it's kind of part of it is empathy and part of it is a little bit of structure that we've seen work before. And part of it is a, a lot of listening and kind of going, oh, right. Yep. You're not on your own here. Come meet some other companies that look just like you and connecting them to each other. It, um, and who's it? Who's who's driving this in, in in your target customers? Is it is it more on the um, the compliance uh, or is it the HR side or do you is it the CISO? Because I mean, obviously, a lot of educational programs are you know brought in from from HR or learning development. Um, you might even have the compliance team say, hey, we need to have you know X Y Z training in place. But when you get over to the CISO side, typically you're looking at you know technology fixes. But so when you're when you're talking about a, an education program, I mean, who's who's who are you communicating with, and who's bringing you in? Oh, so this is where I love what I do because it's really really diverse. So I love that you're mentioning learning and development teams and risk and compliance teams and CISOs because um, over in the US that's a lot more common. Um, but we're in 65 countries, and I can say that probably less than five percent of uh, uh, organizations, and our organizations range from two-person nonprofits who look after the widows of firefighters from 9-11 in New York, all the way through to national level and international airlines and banks. So like huge breadth. And I'd say probably less than 5% have a learning development team. Um, and only a few have a risk and compliance person, let alone a team. So for those ones, uh, for those large ones, we often do a combined effort. So we will, uh, our primary champion is always somebody in engineering leadership because it doesn't matter if it's the right tool or the right program on paper. If your engineers don't want to do it, then you're not going to get anywhere with it. So we work very, very closely with the engineering leaders to understand what their development culture is and will we fit with what they do as engineers. And then we support the learning and development folk and the risk and compliance folk in building that bridge and that relationship so that they're getting uh, a much better chance of success. Um, for those who don't have one of those teams, um, we often work with the engineering leads, sometimes with individual developers who just want to push it from the bottom, um, which is a hard challenge, but good luck to them. Um, and sometimes with the security leadership. But whenever a security leader comes to it, we try very hard to also bring in someone from engineering because this really has to be both teams at the same point. Otherwise, it just won't work. Sounds like a great approach. What, um, how do you, do you price your services? Is it um, by course or by month or what? How does that work? Well, we're very transparent. I, I, when I was back in my security roles, I hated when a vendor wouldn't tell me the pricing. So I've made a rule that our company wouldn't be secretive. Uh, so our book price is 300 US dollars per learner per year. So it does, there's no tiering in that. There's no crazy, you know, extra add-ons. It's one price. You get all your courses, your qualifications, your pathways. But we also have a free plan. And the free plan is there to help small organizations who might not have the budget yet um, just to get started. So they can do some basic training. They can roll out something regardless of where they're at. And in these economic times, even larger organizations can use a little bit of free stuff from time to time. Um, we have volume pricing available for our larger organizations because obviously $300 per learner when you've got thousands of learners doesn't scale. But we talk to our companies. We have kind of a very uh, good framework for how we do that pricing. Um, and we find that that is a, it definitely in the Western countries uh, a great price point because it means you can train your whole team without having to go, oh, right, hang on, this is too much. It's, there's a There's a threshold here I can't cross. 
actually you just you reminded me of another question um, because earlier you mentioned you were in 65 countries and just now you referenced western countries uh, do you offer the programs in any other languages besides english uh, only english at this point and with closed captions um, now we we are looking at whether we do anything else long term, but what we found is the majority of development training is done in English around the world anyway, uh, which is not ideal, but it's sort of, you know, it's just part of how that ecosystem is. Um, so l accessibility and the, you know, the inclusion of people from around the world is very important to us, but we're we're only a 21 person company. So we're kind of taking it very cautiously and carefully on picking those languages. Um, so we will see, uh, but we do have learners, uh, many, many learners who are not English as a first language and they find because they can change the playback speed on our training so they can go slower or faster and they can have the captions there on every single piece of training we produce, um, then they find that actually they're, they're, they're coping pretty well. There, there's been no complaints so far. Awesome. So so how does it work with a company that, you know, essentially a content and education uh, provider. What do you, I mean, what do you look for in terms of your next development? I mean, you already have said how you keep your content fresh, but you know, what's the, how do you see it, your service evolving? I, I'm, I'm assuming this is all on like some type of learning management system or LMS that allows, you know, an admin to track progress of different individuals um, and maybe see their scores, time studied, things like that. That's a big yeah, assumption. Yeah. You'll answer me that. Um, do you <laughs> see the development uh, uh, more on the, the delivery methods or more on the content or or what? Well, I think it's it's got to actually be on three prongs. So we built her an LMS in the end because um, we couldn't find any that we, we wanted the minimum viable LMS. Um, most of our learners and our leaders, they want just just to get the job done. They don't need it to do 17,000 things. They just want three buttons and they're very clear. And so we did a lot of validation. We built uh, the system that they needed and wanted. And we also um, have now the ability to integrate with other people's LMSs. So you can get our content delivered for a number of our programs into those LMS systems. And we're growing that area as we push into larger organizations. Um, the content will always continue to develop. Now, um, our team are attending and speaking at a number of conferences. We're published authors. We still build software ourselves. So we will continue to work with our developers and to understand where the tide is going with their world and continue to develop that out. That will be a, an ongoing thing forever. Um, and then finally, uh, there's that interesting space of where will this head? Now, we've seen a lot of gamified approaches, you know, hacking labs and things, and they're great, but they they focus on a certain type of personality, the slightly competitive people, the confident people, the people who traditionally are just those writing code. So we want to make sure that whatever we're planning is inclusive and doesn't just favor the confident people and let other people self-select out. We also don't believe that delivering education straight into the IDE is the right solution. Having spoken to a lot of engineers now, their IDE is already a very, uh, their, their development environment is already a very busy place. Um, and they choose when they go and seek help. They don't want the help layered on top. It's kind of, if any of us are old enough to remember Clippy from Microsoft days, mm -hmm. um, they see um, your education thrown into their IDEs being the equivalent of Clippy and it annoys them. So we don't, we're not going down that path. 
What I would like to be able to do, um, and things we're playing with, experimenting with, are how can you support a development team building good software, but still give the developers, the engineers and designers the autonomy to make those decisions? So, for example, are there ways that we can gather very basic things about what is being built or designed and pop out test cases in Cucumber that could be put into an automation testing uh, pipeline? So we're playing around with things that support people, but without taking them away from what they're doing, without taking away their autonomy, because I truly believe the future of security and of their high quality software lives with them. Our job is just to make their life easier. Um, and that's a different approach to many other security tool vendors um, who, you know, they live more in the, hey, we're going to assist you where you are kind of space. And that's just, you know, our different view of the world, that's all. No, it sounds sounds amazing. And I mean, obviously, you've got a passion for this. And you, you, you know, you're not just a content company, you're not just a delivery company, you're, you know, you're looking at all aspects of this, and it's more of a kind of a holistic offering. Um, do you do you go to any industry events, uh, you or representatives from Safe Stack, Safe Stack Academy? Absolutely. Um, I, I have two young children, so I, I have a very careful amount. I'm allowed to do five a year. Okay. Um, so this this year, for example, I'm in Confu in Montreal um, towards the end of February. So mm -hmm. that's a big developer community up there. Um, I'll be over at RSA, not speaking, but going and connecting with communities and things uh, in April. So in San Francisco, we are going to render in Atlanta, Georgia, in the end of May, beginning of June, which is a 6,000 person developer conference. And we're going there running a free workshop. We're getting, we really want to get into that community and really understand their culture and, and their vibrancy. It's such an exciting space in Georgia right now. Um, and so, yeah, I really want to, I'm really looking forward to that one. So yeah, we we love to find new events to come across to, um, either just as attendees to meet community or as speakers uh, or to run workshops or or to connect with organizations. And we'll continue to do that. Um, but, but backing that up with a lot of online content that people can enjoy. So videos, blogs, white papers, all of the usual things you would expect. And my favorite one, which I'm not supposed to say because the marketing team gets upset, is I love when people just email me or drop me a message on LinkedIn and just want to have a chat. Because one of the things that I've learned in this crazy journey is that you can never know everything about an industry. So I love listening to development teams and just going, well, tell me about the amazing technology you're building. Tell me about your world. So, yeah, we'll continue to do that, too. That's awesome. And well, hey. I, you said it's uh, four or five trips a, a year. It's a, it's. I'm assuming that's a pretty darn long flight. Are there direct flights to the U.S.? Uh, we can get a direct flight to San Francisco and okay. to Vancouver. And that's going to uh, be like, also, like 15, yeah, 16 hours, hours or something? 12 hours? 12 oh. hours. We can also get a direct flight to New York, but I really wouldn't, you know, sorry, Air New Zealand, but I really wouldn't recommend it. It's like an 18 and a half hour flight. And oh there are not enough movies on the planet to get me satisfied for 18 hours um so yeah we, there's a lot of traveling but you know i live in a beautiful place so that's the, the price i pay um and i think you know one of the things i'd love to share with your audience if there's anyone sat on a strange dream and they're like i want to build a thing one day never see it as a hindrance if you're in somewhere that's non-traditional so you're not in a big city just build it you can make it work uh, the world is a lot smaller than we think these days well, that's the the beauty of the world that we live in right now, right? Especially with all you know the different types of SaaS platforms and and 
code libraries and, and just the, the modular approach to designing products it's it, it, it is a really cool time to be alive in the whole gig economy i mean you you can really do that um i mean you can call it geo arbitrage but it, i would just call it geo choice you can you can just choose where you want to live and not for everybody you know obviously but uh, for a lot of us that that is a, a huge option so well hey it's it laura really enjoyed this conversation obviously like i said before you have a, a lot of passion for what you do um i'm sure safe stack academy is going to continue to do amazingly well look forward to possibly crossing paths with you at one of those events that you mentioned yeah awesome i'd love to see you there mark and any of your audience come say hello um, and just a quick thing, um, I'm not going to try and sell you anything in this. Uh, it's really not my job today, but we do have a free plan. Now, if your organization doesn't have anything yet, come use a free plan. We're not going to hard sell you. If you know of a nonprofit or a small organization that does nothing because they're a bit tight right now and things are pretty hard out there, get them a free plan. We're, we're doing that not just because we're a business we want to grow, but because it's the right thing to do. So uh, be our voice in the world and let's get as many software development teams, big and small, doing a tiny bit of security in 2023. Amen. Awesome. Thanks, Laura. Awesome. Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance.